Well, what a joy to be with you again on this day, the Lord's Day. On Friday and Saturday, if you were not with us, we had a wonderful series of messages on this theme of suffering. And for me, I have been thinking of late about suffering unto righteousness. Of course, we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But that righteousness also includes very practically that you and I in right standing with God through Christ are also to be in the realm of our sanctification ever growing in our righteousness. Not our right standing, but our right doing, our right acting, our right thinking, our right living. And if you were here yesterday when I spoke about this matter of our life being a vapor and that I have seven very close persons in my immediate family who have died and seemingly in rapid-fire succession, the Lord has been giving me great opportunities to grow in practical righteousness. That's His plan. That's His purpose. So I've been thinking a lot about suffering and particularly the subject of suffering as it relates to affliction, God afflicting us, God doing it either at times Himself or through others who are an affliction to us in some way, or just what God is doing in our hearts as we are thinking of how to grow practically through the afflictions of life. And so if you have a bulletin, and I trust that you do, I want to encourage you to look at it now because in our session number six, there's a little piece of paper, just a one-sided piece of paper. Perhaps if you run out of things to write down, you can write it on the back. And this is an acrostic on the word affliction itself. Here's how I came about to do this. I was thinking about all of these things in my life over the last 13, 14 years of all of these deaths and all of the providences of God. And as I was thinking about affliction, of course, as I said in the message yesterday morning, that I have often turned to the Psalms. Those are rich and rewarding portions of God's inspired Word. And at times, of course, they are hard words, difficult words. And in the theology of the Psalms, there is often a word about affliction that actually calls us through affliction to understand God in a whole new way. And so I've been, over the last decade and a half, reading books on suffering and affliction and trials and tests of the Christian life because I dare not lose the opportunity in these days to learn about righteousness through the challenges of life. And two of the books that have been of immense help to me have been recently published by a Wheaton College professor named Mark Talbot. He is working on two more books. It's going to be a four-book series, which is subtitled Suffering and the Christian Life. The first volume came out in 2020, and the second just now here in 2022. 
And so I seized it for my growth, for my understanding, for my spiritual education. When I read the first volume, I was wondering how it would be that a Wheaton College professor of philosophy would have something to say to us regarding affliction, suffering. And I soon found out why. This is actually what he says about himself in the first book, Volume 1, which is wonderfully titled, When the Stars Disappear. Help and hope from stories of suffering in Scripture. I love these two volumes. I can't wait for the other two. I hope he hurries. When I was reading the introductory material and asking that question, who is Mark Talbot and what does he have to say about suffering and affliction? Well, he talks autobiographically in that introduction and he says this, profound suffering involves experiencing something so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness and threatens to overwhelm us, often tempting us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. A calamity is an extraordinarily grave event marked by great loss and lasting distress and affliction. Calamities, like earthquakes, start in cores of tragedy that have waves of suffering radiating out from them. For onlookers, the sufferers' lives may soon seem fairly normal again, but for the sufferers themselves, there may be deep inner fault lines that outline shattered faith. The upheavals involved can be so great that it can seem that life can never be good again. And then he says, here's my story. When I was 17, I fell about 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing, breaking my back and becoming partially paralyzed from the waist down. I spent six months in hospitals. Initially, I had no feeling or movement in my legs and no bowel or bladder control. I dropped from 200 to 145 pounds because I was so nauseated I couldn't eat. Once my back had stabilized a little and I had regained some leg movement, the doctors tried to help me regain even more by having me crawl to breakfast each morning. At the time, I had a calcified stone lodged in my bladder that had formed around the catheter I'd needed during the first few weeks. It had been removed, but the undetected stone remained, causing raging bladder infections that made me incontinent. So when they put me on the floor each morning, I would wet myself and because it was useless to change, remained soaked all day. When I left the hospital, after the stone was finally detected and removed, I was able to control my bladder in most situations and walked awkwardly with a cane. He was 17. Somewhat reminiscent of Johnny Erickson Tata in that accident. Mark Talbot says, I'm now in my 60s, and the consequences of my fall continue to multiply. I have to worry about things most people never even think about. In the last two decades, I sometimes have sleep-robbing leg spasms. And in the last few years, my inability to do much walking has depleted the bone density in my hips to the point where when I fell a couple of years ago, I broke my left hip and became wheelchair-bound. Other complications have hindered my traveling, and some have 
sometimes put my life at risk. I've thought about God's place in my suffering for over 50 years. Yet it is not primarily in terms of my paralysis that I've learned the most about human suffering. Those lessons have come in other ways. I've had seasons of profoundly disorienting perplexity when, night after night, sleep fled from me because I was utterly unable to understand how God in His goodness could have been playing any part in what was happening to me. Remember on Saturday I talked about the night watches. I have experienced hurts, Mark Talbot says, so deep and disruptive that they have dominated my consciousness, making me feel I could lose the Christian faith that had oriented me for almost my whole life. Like one suffering psalmist, I have felt like a little owl alone in the wilderness, feeling that my days were disappearing like smoke and my heart was withering away like parched grass. Psalm 102, 3-11. I am not one who jests at scars while never having felt a wound. Then he says, let me tell you about the aim of this book. Although this book began in response to a particular calamity, it is written for all Christians who are puzzled or distressed by the griefs, troubles, sicknesses, trials, betrayals, persecutions, and afflictions we and others undergo, whether that suffering is acute and perhaps calamitous or chronic in some potentially overwhelming way, or even if it is simply significant enough to make us wonder why it should be. I hope it will remove some of the obstacles that suffering tends to throw across the path of the Christian faith and hope. I want to help you, my fellow Christians. Trust that our suffering is part of God's loving care for us as His people and that we shall ultimately see each piece of it as an unsought gift from Him no matter how difficult or perplexing it may now be. I shall show this from Scripture, and he does it extremely well, as corroborated by personal experience. As Augustine said, I feed you on what I am fed on myself. I set food before you from the pantry, which I too live on from the Lord's storerooms. I was thinking about how Mark Talbot has been so encouraged through his affliction by the psalmist. And so I, myself in my hurting condition, my affliction, I went through Psalm 119 and I found some amazing things that is the acronym affliction. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. It is there, my friends, that I found ten verses, ten verses in Psalm 119 alone about what you and I can do when affliction comes. We could actually call this a Psalm 119 roadmap to navigate the afflictions of life. A roadmap to navigate the crippling afflictions in our life. And to use that analogy further, ten mile markers, we could say about these ten verses, ten mile markers in which you and I can mark or evaluate or analyze our spiritual progress. Are you ready? You have your little piece of paper? Now, I'll repeat some of these so that you won't frustratingly say, he went too fast. 
The problem is I have 10 points and I've got about four minutes per point, okay? Number one, number one, if you see that acrostic there, affliction, the A is this, my friends, awaken my soul according to God's Word. Awaken my soul according to God's Word. That's the first principle. That's the first mile marker to understand the affliction that God gives to us. And in Psalm 119, in the Daleth section, look at verse 25. Psalm 119, verse 25. And I want you to feel the the pathos of the writer. We don't know exactly who the psalmist is here. One of my mentors, Dr. George Zimmick, says that he's convinced that this is actually Daniel. And here is what this writer says. Verse 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. You might actually translate this, I am humiliated. Revive me. You know what revive is? Revival? Reviving the life of a soul. uh, Bringing it up. Revive me. Why? Because my soul, the psalmist says, adheres to the dust. We have a phrase where I come from in Arkansas that when someone is really down and discouraged, they're lower than a snake's belly. And that's pretty low. And that's what the psalmist is saying about his life. You say, well, what's going on? We don't know. But if it is Daniel, he's in a foreign land. He's been, he's been exiled. He's, he's in a place where he desperately wants to go away from to a place that he wants to go to. Or perhaps it's the challenges of living in a foreign land. If these children of Israel are exiled even according to their own sin and are placed in a foreign land, it's for God's purposes. But it doesn't mean that automatically we understand such purposes and it doesn't automatically mean that we are fat, dumb, and happy. In fact, far from it. And here the psalmist is doing this. Lord, when I'm in that trial, when I'm in that test, when I'm in that affliction, I am asking you to raise me up. Raise me up. Awaken my soul. And how? According to God's Word. Isn't that what he says? Give me life. Revive me according to your Word. And I love how most of our English translations put an exclamation point at the end. I've got to have your word. I mean, all the trials and and difficulties of our life are only explainable by God's word. Your word alone can give me life. My soul is cleaving to the dust. I need you, Lord. That's what you can say in the night watches. I need you, Lord. I need your understanding. Why am I going through such affliction in my life? Why? What is its purpose? Can you imagine in the rehabilitation of a paralysis having to drag yourself to breakfast? With the inability to hold in and the incontinence that will embarrass you? Awaken my soul according to God's Word. That's the A in affliction. Number two, the F of affliction, the first one. Fortify my strength according to God's Word. Fortify my strength according to God's Word. I not only need God to revive me because my soul is adhering to the dust, it's cleaving to the dust, but I need my, my strength, Lord. Look at verse 28 of Psalm 119. Right in that same Daleth stanza, 
Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. The NESB says, my soul weeps. Alternate translation, my soul drops. You ever had that sense in your life? The, the innermost part of you cannot, it seems to you, contain a much further drop. You're weeping, you're wailing. Remember I said yesterday that when I received that news about my wife's impending death through cancer with a bleak prognosis, if we don't do anything from this day, December 2nd, 2017, your wife will be deceased in less than three months. That's the kind of, that's the kind of news that takes you to your knees and even further. So what do you do? How do you respond? Of course we're going to give our Lord the why questions. Of course we're going to go through that. But in the context, no, maybe the vortex of the challenge of whatever affliction we're going through, we need to say to our Lord, even in the milieu of the why questions, Lord, fortify me. Fortify me with strength. And how? According to your word. The precious word. The only living and true word there is. And, and that's what the psalmist is asking for. I've got grief. I've got sorrow. I've got anguish. My soul drips with it. Strengthen me according to your word. I've got to have this fortification. I can't go on without it. I tell you, with all of the things that I've experienced in the last decade and a half, as an unbeliever, I don't know what would be my outcome. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I say, Lord, fortify me by giving me strength through your word. Number three, number three, fix my comfort on God's promised word. My comfort, fix it, Lord, by your word. Look at verse 50 of Psalm 119. This is what the psalmist says. If it's Daniel in a foreign land, we don't know, but it certainly is a psalmist, and he's undoubtedly exiled. He's away from all of his familiar surroundings. He's been pummeled and beaten and persecuted and besieged. And in verse 50, he says, This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Can you say that? Life. Life out of death. Life out of struggle. Life out of challenge. Life out of anything and everything. Notice what he says. This is my comfort in my affliction. It's your word. Fix my comfort squarely and only and repeatedly and long-lastingly on your word. How much do we need the Bible in our lives? How much? It's critical. Can't live without it. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is, this is our God sweetly communicating his loving care through His Word to His people. And it's a comforting word. This is my comfort. When you are debilitated by pressurized situations, afflictions, challenges, trials and tests of any kind, where do you go for comfort? Well, some of you might actually, instead of going to God's Word first and foremost, 
would want to go to another Christian. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that, but not in that order. And even those Christians that you go to, and they point you to the word, that's good. But what you need to do when they do so is to then follow up on the very word that they're encouraging you with by studying that word all by yourself. Fixing your comfort on that word. And by the way, when it says there, your promise gives me life, that's of course a synonym for God's word. And it means something like this, his bond. His bond. God is as faithful as his promises declare. Give me life. Revive me. The L in affliction. The L. And this is a hard word, but this is a good word, and it's a necessary word. Learn, that's the L in affliction, learn how affliction produces my obedience. Learn, and it is a hard lesson to learn. It's an excruciating lesson to learn how affliction actually produces my obedience. Look at verse 67 of Psalm 119. I hope you're starring these. I hope you're underlining them. I hope you're circling them. It says in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, read in here, because of my affliction, due to my affliction, by the instrumentation of the affliction, I now keep your word. What a blessing. You say, wait, preacher. Affliction is a blessing? Oh, it hurts so good. No pain, no gain. This is, this is the learning process. This is what God has us in and under. And I know for so many of us, it may be considered the unwanted blessing. But it is a blessing nonetheless. And by the way, this might even be the siren song of somebody who gives a testimony of what was happening in their life from their unconverted position. That what God did faithfully was to take them through the fire of adversity so that they could be shown their unconverted position. And so that they could say, now I keep your word. Who wouldn't say that they would rejoice in such a learned lesson? Isn't that the testimony of so many? I learned this promised benefit, obedience, righteousness, holiness, because I was going my own way. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I was a stray cat. And I thought I was on easy street. Until I realized, I've got to forage for food. I've got to pay the bills. I'm lonely. I'm tired. And I'm lost. And before, in that straying position... I started to receive by the good hand of God, though I didn't want it, I didn't ask for it, and I certainly didn't think I needed it. I was afflicted like nobody's business, and the sweet blessing that resulted was that I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Learn how affliction produces my obedience. I, in affliction... One, two, three, four, five. Number five, incline my heart to see the benefits of affliction. Incline my heart to see the benefits of affliction. Verse 71. This is is so counterintuitive to our culture. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. What? What? No siree. I just want all the goodies. Don't give me a hurricane. 
and what untold blessings might come as a result of the hurricanes in our life. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Lord, here's my prayer. I want you to incline my heart so that I might see the very benefits of my affliction. No, I didn't say right then and there, right at the immediate portal of the affliction itself. Perhaps not. But through the process of time and God's gentle prodding and His fatherly kindness, He can often show us either in the midst of or shortly thereafter the actual benefits of His afflicting work in our life. You do realize that he, he is in control. He is in control of our lives. He's even in control of Satan himself and the demons. All of the underworld has no control except under his sovereign control, including storms, including all of the vicissitudes of life, all of the challenges, all of the grime, all of the grit, all of the dirty stuff in life. And I must say, Lord, as a prayer, incline my heart to actually see the benefits of afflictions. I admit it, God's strange providences which allow us to learn in perhaps no other way. Someone said, grace grows best in winter. I'm not sure about that. But it's probably half true and summer in the scorching heat and in the fall when it seems so beautiful but it's readying us for winter. It's an inclination that you and I must practice. Incline my heart to see the benefits of affliction. Here's the next one. Commend God's faithfulness in afflicting me. Commend God's faithfulness in afflicting me. Look at verse 75. In the Yoth stanza, I know, O Lord, O Yahweh, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, in trustworthiness, in abounding love and kindness, you have afflicted me, and your rules are righteous. And that's where so many Christians, with a warped sense of the knowledge of God and an assumption that His character does not, cannot, will not include the affliction of His people. Read in there any particular denomination that assumes that everything bad in your life is coming from the underworld and Satan, and everything good in your life is coming from God, and never the twain shall meet. No. God purposes in His faithfulness to afflict me. Now again, I, I acknowledge it sounds counterintuitive, but our Lord is to be commended in His faithfulness. Commended. Why? Because it says, your rules are righteous. Righteous rules. The, the Word of God, which extols the character of God, and through the Spirit of God, places such a word into the people of God, so that in their affliction, when it comes, could actually straighten them up and allow them to walk righteously on the right path so that ultimately we could all say, God has a commendable faithfulness in afflicting me for the glory of God. Now that's not something that you and I relish, but we ought to receive it. We ought to receive it. In my affliction, I can learn more about God's character. I, I can affirm that your rules are righteous and just, that you faithfully rule in your universe to afflict me so that Romans 8, 28 and 29 come to pass, that all things are in God's providential plan 
to conform me to the image of His Son. That's His plan. So I commend His faithfulness in bringing these afflictions in my life. How about the tea in affliction? Take supreme delight in God's law. When? During the very height of my affliction. Take supreme delight, I say, in God's law during the very height of my affliction. At its worst possible pinnacle point. How so? Look at verse 92. Verse 92 of Psalm 119. The psalmist says there in the Lamath stanza, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. You see the lens through which we can understand the delight of God's law? One of those lenses through which we look at the wonderful light of truth in God's Word is affliction. It's, it's one of God's place markers. It's a mile marker. Now, I'm not saying uh, some masochist, yeah, bring on the affliction then, Lord. Just bring it on. I'm ready. Hit me. Hurt me. No. no nobody's automatically saying that. But if you have a love and a delight and a desire, a sincere desire to understand the Word of God, the law of God, and if it becomes your very delight, I mean, even Job said, I treasure God's Word even more than my necessary food. No wonder Jesus kept quoting with Satan's fiery darts the Word of God in order to make sure that he was faithful in the attack by the evil one. How much do you have God's Word in your heart? How much time do you take in God's Word? You've got to take supreme delight in it because in the very height of your affliction, when the intensity is at its apex, you've got to say, what does God's Word teach me, tell me, instruct me through the afflictions of my life? I've got to take supreme delight in God's Word because the afflictions will not stop until we get to glory. They're coming. And you know, even if they are coming from Satan, and you say, well, I don't really feel much of his attacking presence right now, that's only because he's pausing to reload. It's coming. Prepare for it. It's just around the corner. And just when you think you can take it easy for a bit, you better make sure that you have your armament because that attack will come and it will come from unlikely sources and unlikely places and you've got to take supreme delight in God's law during the very height of your affliction. And when that comes, you will be prepared. Here's another I in affliction. Invigorate my life. Invigorate my life with Scripture when I am most severely afflicted. Look at verse 107 of Psalm 119. Verse 107. I mean, the psalmist, I love the fact that whoever he is, he's raw and real and conscious of the attack, of the affliction, and he tells God about it. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. I'm low. I don't think I can take it anymore. So what does he do? Lord, give me life. Life, I say. I've got to have an infusion of scriptural oxygen that will course through my lungs so that I can breathe again. Invigorate my life with Scripture according to Your Word when I'm, when I'm lower than low 
sorely, greatly is the sense of this, sorely, greatly, exceedingly afflicted. I've got to have soul-sustaining revival. Lord, please, I'm, I'm begging you. And then the O, the O of affliction. Observe God's precious commandments in my worst trouble and anguish. I don't know what the psalmist is going through, but he's going through it. He says, observe God's precious commandments in my worst trouble and anguish. Where? Verse 143. Verse 143. He says, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. I mean, I can hear somebody saying something like this. Trouble and anguish have found me out. Where's the ripcord? I'm done. I can't handle it. And perhaps like we said yesterday, God is not fair. He's not right in doing this. This is the wrong situation. This is the most problematic scenario. I say it is unfair. Lord, please, call off the dogs. Trouble and anguish seem to be at the beck and call of people who are trying to invade my life. And I say, stop. What does he say? Your commandments are my delight. That's tantamount to saying, I'm going to observe God's precious commandments and not my own circumstances. Those circumstances are real. They're here. They're a part of my life. They're dogging my steps. But my focus cannot be on my problems. I cannot be, what about Bob? Take a vacation from my problems. You can't do that. Problems don't go on vacation. Or if they do, they go with us on vacation. And so what does the psalmist do? Look, I'm not saying that the, that the problems, the anguish, the trouble is not there. Of course it's there. But what I'm going to do in counteracting such a thing is to observe God's commandments as my very delight. Boy, I cannot wait to meet whoever this is in heaven. If it's Daniel, I will say, thank, thank you for how the Lord used you to help me when trouble and anguish was not letting me go. And then the last, the end. Never forget the law of God's ability to deliver me from my affliction. Never forget this, Christian friend. Never forget the law of God's ability to deliver me from my affliction. Don't ever forget that. Look at verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me. He's honest, this psalmist. He's honest, Lord. Deliver me. Help me. Look on my affliction and deliver me for, this is the explanatory idea, for I do not forget your law. I haven't forgotten it, and I'm trying to use it, and I'm trying to incorporate it in my life, and the intensity is still there, and the affliction is, in fact, seemingly even more powerful. But I'm not going to forget your law. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hold on to it tenaciously. And if you want to see an opposite of this, look at some of the verses that are right below it. Look at verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Do you see the difference? You see the opposite? Verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. You see the difference between believers and unbelievers? The unbelievers aren't looking 
in the moments of their affliction to the delight of God's Word, but the believers are. You're, you're never forgetting the ability of the law of God to deliver you from whatever affliction you may be going through. It's a rescue operation. Deliver me. Deliver me. That's what he says. Deliver me. Rescue me. It is, it is your heavenly Father's delight for you to use His Word and ask for His deliverance. I remember this illustration for as long as I live. When I was pastoring in Little Rock, Arkansas, 15 years, and I just remember after a long Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, preaching, pastoral ministry, all of these eight children of my wife's and mine, and I would usually be so hungry because I don't like to eat much on Sundays. Don't want a you know burping preacher. <laughs> and we would be driving home on those Sunday nights. I was totally exhausted, hungry as anything, and my kids in that big van of ours, eight kids, all of them little kiddos, and they would always be, and I could hear the whispers in the back, oh, I hope Dad turns into Wendy's. <laughs> I just hope Dad turns into Wendy's. And I could hear my dear, sweet Proverbs 31 wife say, we've got bread and meat at home, <laughs> and I can make it. We're going to be fine. You won't starve. I'll make an especially good sandwich. And the kids are praying in the gut. And then dad invariably turns left right into Wendy's. You, you know why, men. You know, and I'd say, but don't we all kiddies love the Frosties? Aren't they so good for us? And my Proverbs 31 wife would say, they are not nutritional. <laughs> and my kids will tell you to this day that I quote to them from the very Word of God, what good father does not cease to give good gifts to his children? <laughs> Now, I recognize that's completely out of context. <laughs> and in hermeneutical processes, I would grant you that. But in the moment, I want to be cheered as a loving father. <laughs> and you know, when that affliction comes in your life, you're asking a good God to deliver you. And he's a good God. Now when those trials come, they're hard. They're incredibly hard. I've, I've often said in these last days, particularly with these seven deaths in mind, God's plan is twofold. He does his work to pulverize you so that one day he can tenderize you. That's God's plan. This second book by Mark Talbot is actually titled with a phrase out of Psalm 119. Give me understanding that I may live. We've been talking a lot about revival, living, right? He closes a portion of this book by the unimaginable story of the theologian, the Presbyterian theologian, R.L. Dabney. Robert Dabney was around in the Civil War era. Mark Talbot says this as I close. Suffering prompts us to reconsider our lives now before it is too late. It can burn the fat off our hearts teaching us by God's grace to delight in His ways. And then he says, see Psalm 119, 69 and 70. 
It can set us on a quest for understanding that leads us to love Him, His commandments, and His Word in a way that involves far more than our seeking simply to end our suffering, Psalm 119, 73, and 74. Insofar as God uses our suffering to bring us back to Himself and to hope in the glories that await those who love Him, we can indeed infirm with the psalmist, You are good and do good. I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness You have afflicted me. Psalm 119, 68 and 75. It affirms, this affliction, our expectations about nature's regularities. God reveals Himself in His goodness through life's ordinary pleasures. Yet suffering may still disorient us when it comes. Indeed, profound suffering can shake even the most steadfast among us by making it hard for us to embrace the storyline that makes it part of a much greater good. And that's right, because when you're right in that trial and you can't see anything else and it is blinding you to the reality of what God is doing, it can unnerve you in unfathomable ways. We all admit that. And he says, and so it was for the great Reformed theologian Robert Louis Dabney in 1855. Dabney's first great sorrow came when his five-year-old Jimmy died after a week of excruciating suffering that left him mute while still capable of, quote, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and weeping mother for help. This prompted Dabney to write that he had, quote, learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I was than a few days ago. Jimmy's death drove home the fate stalking us all. It became fearful to live and love in such a world, yet Dabney could still remind himself, while these were the feelings with which the natural heart regards these calamities to the Christian faith, they wear a different aspect. Death is no longer a hellish minister and tyrant, but Christ's messenger. Our parting is not for long. Jimmy's despoiled and ruined body will be raised and all its ravished beauties more than repaired. And as to the other beloved ones whom I see exposed to disease and death, I know that death cannot touch them unless the Heavenly Father who orders everything for me in love and wisdom sees it best. So I can trust them, though tremblingly, to His keeping and be at peace. And then, when His firstborn son Bobby died 23 days later, His feelings changed. When Jimmy died, He wrote, that's the first boy, grief was pungent. But the actings of faith, the embracing of consolation, the conception of all the cheering truths like Psalm 119, which ministered consolation, were proportionably vivid. But when the stroke was repeated, the second son's death, when the stroke was repeated and thereby doubled, I seemed to be paralyzed and stunned. I know that my loss is doubled, and I know also that the same cheering truths applied to the second as to the first, but I remain stupid, downcast, almost without hope and interest. Mark Talbot says, This belighted Dabney's feelings for Charles, his then youngest son, when he turned away from Jimmy's corpse to his lovely five-month-old infant, he wrote, His affections... And fears seemed to flow out toward Charles with a strength both delicious and agonizing. He says about that little five-month-old, I never tired of folding in my, him in my arms as the sweet substitute for my loss, nor of trembling for him also, lest the loss could extend to him. But when Bobby was taken, he wrote, and our little one seemed to remain our only hope, I was both afraid and reluctant to center my affections on him. I feel towards him a strange 
mixture of languor and pain, not having the heart to be happy in his caresses and not daring. Some of you have gone through that. Death has struck me, he says, with a dagger of ice. He has not only wounded, but benumbed me. And losing Jimmy and Bobby, Dabney continued to hope that they were saved, renewed, and glorified in the grace of God, even though he lost his capacity to rejoice in that hope, yet his griefs were not over. In 1862, his favorite sister Betty died in his arms, victim to a lung infection caught during her labors in the Civil War. The infection emaciated and then killed her in part because the effort of eating was such torture that enough nourishment could not be taken to sustain nature, life. His visit to Betty's deathbed was delayed because he was bedridden himself for three months by typhus, typhoid fever. And then five-year-old Tom, his fourth son, died. He was utterly beside himself. Then he wrote a poem called Tried But Comforted, expressing how immensely difficult it can be, these three boys who have died. His only sister dying. He says, when he tried to picture Tom among the heavenly host, singing glory to thee, eternal king, he found himself asking, but is not this a hope too sweet? Faith is too weak the joy to meet. Oh, might my bursting heart but see if true the blissful thought can be. Would my burdened heart I know, with none but tears of joy o'erflow? But ah, when faith would strain her eyes, for that blessed vision there arise. The shadows of my dreary home, twixt heaven and my heart there come. That dying bed, that corpse, that bier And when I strive that song to hear, sad memory echoes but the wail my love to soothe could not avail. I only hear his anguished cry. I only see his glazing eye. Jimmy's death, Bobby's death, Tom's death, makes one wonder, how can the Christian story be true when life includes something like this? Dabney closed his poem by affirming the need for faith and hope. He wrote to his mother after his sister's death, the feeling that surely God must be our enemy since he has permitted us and our loved ones to suffer so horrendously is all too apt to arise under great sorrows. But then he says this, it is in refutation of this feeling, like all is lost, there is no hope, in refutation of this feeling, the Apostle Paul wrote to tell Christians who were suffering in his day that suffering shouldn't surprise them as though something strange were happening. 1 Peter 4.12. Peter would remind us, Dabney wrote, that for God's own children to suffer, even though it be severely, is no novel thing. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. The road of bereavement is one along which all the Bible saints travel. Yet, they got home safely, and so may we. And so may we. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, So may we, as Bible travelers, even through the traversing of Psalm 119, so precious to us, what a balm to our soul. May it be 
the very thing that arms us in our homeward bound. Thank you for affliction, for what it is and what it does, so that it might be the very wings that allows us to fly to the Lord Jesus Christ and be forever in His loving arms. We pray in His name. Amen.